All right, so I've got a question for you as we kick off this morning. How many of you have seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge? came out a couple years ago. Few of you. Not a lot of you. A few of you. All right, now this movie, it's a true story, in fact, is about the life of a young man named Desmond Doss, who enlists in the Army in World War II. That is Desmond Doss. That is President Truman. That really happened. That is a picture. They've added the color since then. It originally happened in black and white. It actually happened in color. We know that the picture was taken in black and white. We've added the depth and the color back to what was the real situation at the time. Anyway, he enlisted in the Army after the Pearl Harbor attack uh, in December of 1941 because like many, most men in our country, he wanted to join and serve in the military. However, he had a problem. Uh, he's a devoutly religious man, and he had taken an oath not to carry a weapon. And so he heard about this medic unit that he could join. He could join, he could be part of the medic, he could go into combat, but rather than take life, he could help save it. He could rescue, he could help, he could be of aid of those who were, in fact, fighting to defend our country, which had been attacked very uh, viciously at that time. Well, you, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know my affinity for military history and war movies, being a former Marine. This movie's in my wheelhouse, and I, I recommend it. If you don't mind a little battle, like a very realistic battle scene near the second half of the movie, it really is a phenomenal movie and story. It's a beautiful movie. It's almost unbelievable because Doss is such a sweet and naive young man. In fact, if you get on YouTube and listen to video of him talking, he has this crazy, weird voice. And you're like, is that a real voice? And he is a real man. This did really happen. So he has this belief. He joins as a medic. And once he gets to basic training, uh, life gets difficult. His refusal to pick up a rifle and train with his fellow army uh, soldiers because of his religious beliefs causes him a ton of trouble. There are other Christian men in his unit as the church and faith was incredibly, uh, was significantly more a centerpiece of society back uh, during the time in the 40s, during the time of World War II. But most, if not just about every man, didn't think that their faith prevented them from picking up a weapon. Well, that was the case for Doss. He gets in trouble with his fellow soldiers, with his sergeant, with his commanding officer, and eventually with the base commander. And he's eventually charged with disobeying a direct order, which is a big deal. If you're not from a military background, disobeying a direct order will get you in trouble. It doesn't matter what that order is. Disobe an order is an order, and you have to follow. But he won't. He won't follow, and so they give him an out. They say, you can quit. And he decides not to quit either, because quitting would be giving up. He wants to get, go into battle. He wants to help. He wants to serve. So because he won't quit, because he won't pick up a weapon, they ultimately court-martial him. And so there he is, in a court-martial, about to be thrown in the brig, the military word for prison. And it just so happens that his dad is a highly decorated World War I veteran, who he's estranged from, by the way. His dad fought in some pretty harsh battles in World War I, took to alcohol after watching the horrors of war and was estranged from his son for many years. It's a beautiful story of redemption uh, in there as well. But his dad finds out about his situation and his dad has an old friend from World War I who just happens to be one of the generals running the war in Washington. Well, 
His dad intervenes for him, and he gets permission to go into combat even without his rifle. Now there's more. The best part of the story I left untold. So if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's phenomenal. But what the movie shows so wonderfully is how a follower of Jesus did, in fact, live out the words of Romans chapter 12, where we are called to love, to truly love people. When we talk about love, and uh, uh, Matt mentioned this last week, and it's been mentioned previously, it's kind of this half-hearted, I love pizza, I love my dog, I love my wife. I mean, what does this word mean? Paul, in chapter 12 of Romans, breaks down very specifically and with a, almost a list. These are ways that love is actually practiced. And this week, we move into a, a different aspect of that in our passage. And Private Doss illustrates that wonderfully. Whether you're friend or enemy, because of the amazing love that God has shown to us, we are called to love others. Doss, because he wouldn't pick up a rifle, he was ridiculed, he was beaten by his fellow members in his platoon, and when the sergeant came to find out who did it, his quote was, I'm a pretty heavy sleeper, I don't recall. These, these men deserved punishment, they deserved judge justice for what they had done to him. But he wouldn't give in. He took the beating covered their, their offense against him and proceeded at great risk to himself. Well, this story, as you see, will illustrate where we're at this morning, as I said, in Romans chapter 12, in a series that we are calling Morph. Now, Morph is the Greek word for transform, to change or transform. For those of you that are new this morning, Romans, we, we're talking about, is a long letter written by the early church leader, the Apostle Paul. It's long enough to where we call it a book. It's got 16 chapters. It probably is a book more than it's a letter. But in that day, it was considered a letter. Uh, it was a letter inspired by God through Paul. And we're in chapter 12. And chapter 12 is a turning point in the book because chapters 1 through 11 discusses who God is and describes in great detail what God has done specifically in Jesus Christ for you and for me. And chapter 12 is where it gets into, okay, because of what God has done, now how should you and I live because of this? So I want to refresh ourselves with Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, and by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And as you can see, there's two big phrases in that verse that set up what we're going to talk about today. The first is, Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy, that's Paul stating, in light of the grace and the love and all that God accomplished in and through Jesus Christ for you and I and this lost world who deserved none of it. In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves. Offer yourselves to be, and this is part two, to be transformed by the power of God. 
to be transformed, to be morphed, to become something new that you and I were not originally. That's what this series is about, this beginning process, this transformation process that Paul talks about here in chapter 12. Now today we're picking up in verse 14, we're picking up where Matt left off in verse 13 last week, and it's really the same passage. There's just so much in it that Matt stopped at 13, he could have kept going, but time and, uh, and just convenience didn't allow it, so we had to put a pause in there, and I'm picking up um, with verse 14. So we're going to pick up with verse 14, read 14, 15, and 16 here this morning. You can follow along in your Bibles, on your phones if you got them, or on the screen as they will be list, uh, written. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, last week's message covered the first part of the section that I mentioned on love. And Matt's, anybody remember the title of Matt's message from last week? Love for reals. Because that's how the kids say it today. Love for reals. Well, as I was figuring, we're just going through the same passage, and if that's how they say it today, and we know that I'm one of them, obviously, if that's how they say it, and we're still in the middle of it, my message title, a lot of creativity here, love for reals, parentheses, C-O-N-T, period, and parentheses. Because we're continuing. I mean, this is what love is about. Um, and Matt had a great title, although Matt will be up next week. I'm pretty sure he won't go for three in a row. His creative integrity won't allow him to use the same title three weeks in a row. There's a little pride there with Matt. But uh, I'm not proud in that regard. He had a good title. We're going to run with it. But this passage is very important to us. And whereas I would normally get up here and I like to put the passage up, as you know, and I like to start with the top and kind of work through the, work through the verses and understand the order and the way it was set up, there really is no understandable order or uh, way that this passage is assembled. Different scholars have looked at it in different ways. And so because of that, I want to start with the final verse of the three that we looked at, verse 16. And this phrase right here, never be wise in your own sight. Now that's the last verse of the section we're in this morning. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, newsflash here, I don't know if you know, but one of my struggles since, I don't know, birth has been portraying myself as a know-it-all. Does that sound foreign to me at all? I think I've gotten better, um, but I'm that guy. I'm the guy who always thought more highly of himself, and still do, than I ought or I should have. It's my, uh, my Achilles heel, one of them, one of many of them, obviously. So these verses always mean a lot to me. And so the fact that this is here, it made me think about a similar verse early in verse 12. Do you remember what verse that might have been early in verse 12? A very similar type of verse. Happened two, three weeks ago. Pastor Jacob was up here teaching. Do any of you remember what number that is? It's verse 3. 
If you read verse 3, this is what Paul says in Romans 12, 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And so in verse 3, if Paul writes that verse, and as he's running through this list of how to love, he hit, hits us again in verse 16, do not think, do not be wise in your own sight. As we know, when we see repetition, we have to stop and recognize that the emphasis means something. That this is really, really important for you and I to understand if we're going to delve in and understand this passage on love as it is intended to impact us and impact Christians today and around the world. Also, focusing on verse 16 allows me to uh, uh, insert my own mnemonic device this morning and the acronym that we are going to use as our guide through the rest of our message. And that acronym is HUB, as in hub of a wheel. And this morning, our hub will also be our hub. <laughs> It'll be the center point. It'll be the point upon which this verse and our ability to love rests and resides and finds its force and inertia. And so this morning, we begin with our first point, and that's humility. Humility. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, be humble. Live in humility. And I'm not talking about the, oh, shucks, it was good, but it wasn't that good. Not that kind of humility. That's a false, you know, I just did well at something and people are complimenting me and I'm not supposed to enjoy the compliments I get from people. No, we're talking about real humility. Lowering oneself from the position of power and advantage that you and I routinely, if not daily, hold. To enter into a lower status of existence with people and for people in order to serve them and elevate them and to lift them up. That's what humility is. It's not just pushing away compliments. It's an active entering into a position of lowly existence for the purpose of honoring God and loving others. In fact, Romans 12, 16, the second part of Romans 12, 16 says this, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Humility is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Apart from faith itself, Humility, if we're going to follow and be like Jesus, humility really is the cornerstone. There's a bunch of verses. I'm going to list them. I'm not going to go into them. If you're taking notes either on your uh, uh, program or in your app, uh, these are really important verses I would encourage you to put down. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 talks about how Jesus himself became a man and what that meant, what that meant in the eyes of God, what that meant to mankind, how he who had everything gave up everything and became nothing, powerful, short little narrative about exactly what Jesus did. There's two verses in the New Testament. I've mentioned them before. I'm sure I'll mention them again. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5, which say the same thing, that God is opposed to the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. You want to put yourself in a position to receive God's grace. You need his grace. You want to be filled with his presence and his power. Humble yourself. God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. 
There's another verse that says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And then there's Jesus' own words in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verse 3, where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Another word for poor in spirit is the humble, the lowly. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, heaven. What we're all in this for. That's for the humble, the poor in spirit. And so it's important for us to be humble and let humility drive. And we're going to find out why here uh, in a little bit. The second word in hub coming off of the U is unity. Romans 12, 16a, the first part of 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Now, living peaceably with people is a powerful thing. This isn't just talking within the body of believers, people who we share faith with, although that is important. Here, it is talking about living in harmony with people outside the body of faith, people who might otherwise give us legitimate reason to be at odds with. We live in a world that presents us with temptations to become angry, upset, frustrated all the time. It can be the wind blowing the smoke from the fire in our yard into the neighbor's yard, and oh, their screen door is open, and the smoke gets in the house, and they come over really upset. I have no idea what that is like. I'm just kind of, an idea came to mind. And then you've got this ongoing hostility every time you want to burn some lawn uh, leaves and, and sticks, which we're allowed to do here in the, in the unincorporated uh, South County. But it can create tension. It can create trouble. It can be an oversight by a teacher or coach that sets a child back for no apparent reason or maybe even some undeserved reason. You maybe as a parent have experienced that. It can be the child himself who acts like a jerk towards your child and makes life difficult for them. And how do we live at peace with them? It can be some sort of rivalry at work where the two, two or more people are are trying to accomplish the same thing, which is achieve, to work well and diligently be recognized, ultimately knowing that there's a limited amount of advancement and opportunities to be rewarded. And so that, that rivalry can create hostility. It could be an offhanded comment that was not intended for harm at all, but was misunderstood, and a person already having a bad day took offense to it and didn't tell you, and it built, and now we've got this issue that I had no idea was there, and peace, and peace is gone and discord is present. So many things can happen throughout our day. Living in harmony is not easy. Maintaining unity with people, it takes work. It requires diligence. But Paul tells us, live in harmony with people. Be unified with them. Find points of unity that you can have and maintain with people. Friendships and relationships, like everything else in this world, they decay. They go from order to disorder unless we are actively pouring into them, adding to them, nurturing them. Time distance doesn't necessarily make the heart grow fonder. It allows an enemy a chance to whisper and tempt and divide and ultimately drive people apart. So the second point is unity. And our third point and our final point, which we're going to spend the rest of our time, is actually verse 14. And it's this. It's the B in blessing. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This actually means ask God to bless. It means to pursue the well-being of, the benefit of. It doesn't just say, peace be with you. 
it means to do that, but to want good things to happen. Matthew 5.44 and Luke 6, uh, 1 Matthew 5.44, these are the words of Jesus. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. Be actively engaging them with my power for my blessing. Luke 6.28, also the words of Jesus through the, from the Gospel of Luke says, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. These are, these are crazy words. These are not the types of words that you and I come to understand in our justice-driven society. No, a person who abuses us, they get justice. They get what they deserve, and they have it coming. But that's not how Jesus looks at things. That's not how the gospel works. We bless those who hurt us. We bless those who make life difficult for us. Paul is not saying that we should refrain from retaliating against persecutors or that we should just forgive them. He is saying that we should actively seek their good as we pray for God's blessings upon them. That is so counterintuitive, countercultural. It's the last thing we would think of or want to do. And it's the exact thing that Paul is telling us to do in verse 14. Another way of saying it is this. This verse is not just addressing how we would treat someone who is persecuting us, but it goes deeper. It addresses our longing for them. What is your longing for those who make life difficult for you, who attack you because you seek to do good and to follow Jesus and to be a witness? What's your longing for them? What's your heart's attitude towards them? It's actually, we know it's important because bless is repeated twice. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And he makes it clear, we are not allowed to curse mean people. We're not allowed to do it. When we do it, we sin. Now, I'm not saying that we don't sin because we all sin, but God does not give us a 15-second rule to curse them out and then to be done, okay, 15-second rule, I'm done cursing, that was okay. No, that curse was giving in to the enemy who wants to plant that seed of division. There's no 15-second rule like the five-second rule of food falling on the floor. You don't get a little grace period to cuss people out before you decide, okay, I'm done cussing them. No. Our heart, our response indicates the heart, the work that God is doing in us. And remember, I am not here to give you a list of rules to add on. We do all of this. Why? Because of his mercy towards us in view of God's mercy. What are we supposed to do? Show the same mercy. He continues in verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Celebrating the fortune of somebody else's life is a great way to bless them and empathizing or just being present with somebody in their sadness without trying to fix the situation. My wife is great. And it's a thing I've picked up from whenever she, sometimes when she encounters somebody who's struggling. I guess I'm giving away her secret here. She says, Job's friends made a mistake of presuming they knew what you were going through. I don't want to be like them. I just want to be here. How can I help? And if you don't know the story of Job, read it. You'll understand. And sometimes that's just what we need to be. Just weep with those who weep. Just be present. What's harder, though, is the celebrating. It's harder for us to celebrate someone's fortune, especially if it's fortune that we don't have. <gasps> that's my big one. Remember that pride? It's also the green-eyed monster is one of my big ones, envy. I'm always looking, how is somebody else getting ahead? 
and am I keeping up with them? The temptation, rivalry, envy. You know how you put that to death? You rejoice with someone who has good things happen, especially when they don't happen to you. That's how you put to death the enemy's attempts to take us down and to divide us. That's how love is shown. Well, as we talk about persecution, we don't understand it maybe as well as some people might. I mean, we have a little bit of persecution every now and then, and some of us might have more. But really, we live in a blessed country for a blessed period of years. Uh, I listened to a message from uh, John Piper. He gave a talk, and he said, the American experience is unique in that the 350 years our country has existed is unlike any place in the world and any point in history. Because for the most of our country's existence, being a Christian has been to your advantage. Christian principles allow you to make good business deals. Christian principles were the norm for decades, if not centuries. Even today, Christian principles is seeing you as a good person of the community. You might even get rewarded or, or acknowledged in some way. That's not the case in most other parts of the world, and that hasn't been the case throughout history. So for us to understand what it is like to live in persecution, where Christianity really is hard, um, I want to show a map right here. These are the countries in the world where persecution is active and real, and it's hard, and there is no escape from the hostility that you face. There is no asking the, the, the boss to move us to a different apartment. There is no selling my home and moving to a different community. There is no taking my kids out of this school and moving to that school. This is a, these are places where Christians live, and there's persecution, and that's all there is. I want to show you a four-minute video. It's a little glimpse into a window of what life is like in Pakistan for Christians who have made cognizant choices to love and to follow Jesus and have incurred the persecution as a result. Let's play the video. Now, that's real. That's persecution in your face all the time. We Americans can't even conceive of that. There's no such thing as a second-class citizen here in America. We have it. Our First Amendment guarantees us rights and privileges with regard to religion. And so we need to watch that. We need to think on that and meditate on that. And we need to love them and pray for them. We need to pray for their captors, to pray for their abusers, that they too would receive the grace of God and be forgiven of their sins and have the ultimate gift that you and I also have been able to receive. But this is not our reality. We can pray for these people, pray for the persecuted church around the world, but this is not our church. We have a different type of persecution. We have a, an unseen persecution. It's a very passive, and yet it's very powerful. It's hard for us to compare our struggle to the struggles we might see there or we might hear about in some other story, but that does not mean that the words of Romans 12 are not applicable for you and I this morning. Just because we don't face government-mandated or systemic persecution reinforced by society, we all still face difficult people and difficult situations in our lives, either ongoing or at some point. People, for one reason or another, who don't really like us. People whom we don't really like. Parents of classmates that I mentioned. Neighbors who we've become estranged from. Family members who have done us wrong. And as a result, there's a divide 
or whom we've done wrong and are mad at us, or some crazy, complicated mixture of the two, which is so common in our families. Someone has hurt you deeply, is hurting you, annoyingly, maybe deeply. And as we try to follow Jesus, their wounds act as stumbling blocks. It gets in the way. Their face, their person is a struggle for us to get past in order to be wholly present with God, free of the burden of their sin. Does anyone come to mind for you? Now, I want to delineate here. If you have sinned against somebody and you have caused division, this verse is not applying to that. There are other verses that address that. There are other verses that say that we as followers of Jesus need to go and seek forgiveness from those whom we have hurt. We just can't pretend like it didn't happen and move on. We are called to take the initiative, and as much as it is up to us to be at peace with all people, which will happen later in chapter 16, you'll hear that verse again, But if you've caused difficulty, if you've hurt somebody, you have a responsibility, I have a responsibility to go to them and to humbly seek their forgiveness. So that's not what this is talking about. If for some other reason someone has decided not to like you, someone has decided to make your life difficult, you think it may be associated with your faith, it might just be chance, but nonetheless as a follower of Jesus, what can I do, what should I do? I want to give us a moment here to think about that. I want us to just bow our heads, close our eyes, and just take a few moments, 30 seconds or so, and just pray and say, God, who? Sometimes these people are obvious. Sometimes they're hidden people, people that we just moved on from, and we thought it was okay, and we don't realize that that root of sin is still there. Let's just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to us here for a couple moments. Father, we cannot let bitterness take root in our hearts. We must daily, diligently, vigilantly go after it. And I pray right now for those people. I pray right now for those persons that came to mind or are coming to mind. Old from way back or maybe very present today or tomorrow, people we will face. And I pray that you will, in the power of your spirit, through the love and mercy shown to us in Jesus, fill us with your spirit and with your power and with a resolve to act in faith and to bless those who persecute us. To be humble. Just to be humble. To take a lowly position as Jesus took when he came for us. To pursue unity. To to, to, to 
try to live at peace as much as we're able to, to build that bridge with someone or some many people, in fact. And then to bless, to actively pursue the good of these people. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us to act on this this week and give us the strength and courage to do so, not allowing this bitterness to take place. We pray for us as a church body. We pray that we would love each other and we would pursue humility, unity, and blessings toward each other, especially within the body of Christ here at Rooftop. If there are relationships that are divided and people are at odds, I pray that you will initiate, convict, encourage to restore the unity that will reveal your glory and your love, especially among the people of God. Thank you. Thank you for these teachings. Thank you for these encouragements, for these commands to help correct us as we seek out of the grace you've given us to do our best to follow after you. In Jesus' name.